Welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, these uh, last final lectures of the course, uh, we start delving into the world of the practical, perhaps. Uh, these are some of the practical tools and knowledge that you will get in terms of the uh, environment, perhaps, of environmental toxicology. And what I mean by that is when you are out there actually doing uh, the good work of environmental toxicology, what are some of the tools, the practices, and perhaps the drivers, especially with regards to environmental law and regulation? the subject of the next lecture that we'll talk about here. Today's lecture, Monitoring Chemicals in the Environment, you can consider to be a toolkit, a toolkit for those of you that actually will get out into the field or actually be looking at environmental data, trying to digest it, trying to perhaps uh, create a risk assessment or a risk management tool to understand, in fact, whether environmental change is happening as a result of uh, typically anthropogenic uh, sources. In monitoring chemicals for in the environment, what we'll try to do is establish the context and define some of the tools, the critical jargon, the knows, the, the knowledge that we need to have when we go and do what in most cases uh, are a very expensive uh, field assessment campaigns. The idea here is if we are going to go out and involve a tremendous amount of action and activity, not only field activity but laboratory activity as well, we want to make sure before we take that first step into the field that what we are doing has a good basis in the scientific method and that it is a quality controlled, quality assured action that we are getting the best quality information for the amount of resource, whether it be our own time and materials, but also the funds uh, associated with monitoring chemicals in the environment. Our learning objectives here today what we'll try to do is have you understand the importance of some of these tools, and they can be things like quality assurance project plans, or QAPs, Q-A-P-Ps. These are important uh, uh, structural tools uh, for effective monitoring of environmental chemicals. We'd like to have you be able to describe some of the elements of a quality assurance project plan, how you put one together. This essentially is a planning document, like in the title, and so this is going to be the manual, the standard operating procedures, and when you go out, the idea behind the study, and we'll talk about all of the different components of a well-designed QAPP. We'll try to have you to be able to describe some of the elements in the development of data quality objectives, or DQO. Uh, when is good good enough? How many significant figures do you need? What's your quality assurance, quality control in terms of sampling protocols, laboratory protocols? What is your goal in terms of data reproducibility, laboratory splits, all of those quality objectives that you'd like to have to be actually detailed before you start doing the activity so that you get an unbiased interpretation of whether or not you've achieved those quality objectives. We'd like to also have you walk away with being able to define quality assurance and quality control. We have all heard QA and QC at some point in time. I want to have you have a very good, sound understanding of QAQC so that when you hear those words or you become a part of a QAQC uh, implementation, you'll know why you're doing uh, certain activities. 
let me tell you from experience that quality assurance and quality control is an important factor in the development of any monitoring plan. QA, QC can cost about 25% of your overall activities budget. When you think about that monitoring activities are rarely less than tens of thousands of dollars, you're talking about a significant financial commitment and the idea is you put the activities up front to make sure that the results of your monitoring activities have a defined level of quality assurance and quality control. Why? because people are going to be changing behaviors, people are going to be actually using your information to modify the results, to change practices, change discharge, uh, change uh, relative risk out in the environment. So you want to make sure that the data that is driving that change in activity is actually of the highest quality you can deliver. We also would like to have you be able to explore some of the arguments associated with chemical versus biological monitoring and the chemicals uh, monitoring in the environment. Um, when you are a biologist, uh, you have a little bit of a, uh, a biological bias, if you will. Uh, if you come from a stronger chemical background, you like the precision of chemistry and chemical analysis. So we have different approaches and different biases associated with monitoring impacts in the environment. We'll try today as well to have you explore the indicator species concept. Uh, many of you have heard about indicator species. Uh, you also might have heard the term trophy species. Uh, we get very, very worried, for example, when bald eagles are impacted by human pollution. Uh, perhaps uh, not many of us uh, get as concerned, although we probably should, if water fleas or daphnids get impacted uh, by uh, human pollution. We'd like to have you be able to understand some of the critical elements of a quality-based sampling program. And we're going to finish up with a discussion. And this is a fairly uh, involved discussion. I've taken the majority of this out of the NPDES uh, handbook, uh, training handbook uh, of, from EPA for EPA officers. NPDES is the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System. And this is an element of the Clean Water Act. Uh, this is the so-called permit to pollute. We'll talk about some of the history of the NPDES, how in fact point sources of pollution are actually monitored and permitted or licensed under this particular program, and how we do risk-based development of allowable levels of water contamination under this particular program. Well, we have to ask ourselves, why should we monitor the environment? And there's many reasons. If we go back in our own environmental history, we see what happens when we have all of these wonderful human developments, but in fact, uh, we insert them into uh, uh, commercial processes, public processes, into our behaviors without any concern for the long view. If we go back to even uh, the development of some of the historical footage in the Rachel Carson video, we learned a harsh lesson perhaps that uh, uh, better living through chemistry sometimes has its downside. So in a certain sense, the major drivers for us are public health and safety. We get concerned about food quality, about water quality, about air quality, now that we know that in fact our actions and activities have and can have dramatic impacts, negative impacts quite often, 
on the overall quality of our environment. We want to work to minimize risk. With respect to environmental quality, we'd like to develop a system of ecological sustainability so that we can co-inhabit uh, the planet uh, with uh, the wildlife species that are out there. We'd like to minimize risks, the contamination. It's not that all contamination is necessarily bad. Recall that when we exhale, we are in fact producing or releasing some carbon dioxide. Uh, we, in fact, pollute just by our nature, our living uh, system. What we want to do is minimize the risk associated with anthropogenic pollution. We'd like to have some feedback on anthropogenic change. What actions and activities are we doing that will have non-sustainable impacts? This is critically important. We've had some harsh learning lessons here in the recent past. Perhaps the largest of these is the use of uh, chlorinated fluorocarbons as refrigerants and a development of the hole in the ozone layer. We have many of these uh, looming on the future. Perhaps the greatest of these is global climate change. We'd like to have some feedback as well on the potential for exposure, acute and chronic toxicants to wildlife and also food chain effects to humankind. We'd like to also monitor to develop a baseline. How can we know if things have changed and changed for the better or the worse unless we have a well-established baseline? You see that in the global climate change arguments in terms of what exactly is the baseline in terms of thermal change. Is it a geological process? Are we just riding along on what the Earth processes are doing? Or are we accelerating those processes via human activities? We'd like to also be able to monitor to develop a standard uh, for uh, when we know an area of water or land is contaminated, whether or not we are experiencing the desired endpoints in remediation or reclamation to minimize risk. Are we doing a good job in uh, mitigating risk, uh, managing risk via our activities? These are all part of the drivers for monitoring, and these are sometimes the result of the regulatory pressures, the laws and regulations, and administrative policies that we'll talk about next time when we talk about what the difference is between science and regulatory science. Some of the example monitoring programs that we have here in the United States, and what you find, by the way, internationally, is that quite often EPA and U.S. federal law has done a good job in establishing and developing good public policy approaches to uh, managing our environment, managing our public health. And uh, these, uh, in essence, have been mirrored uh, in international law and also in the law of various countries, developed countries, especially around the world. In the U.S., we have the SDWA, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and we'll go through this a little bit next time. All of these we'll go through in some element of detail in our uh, Environmental Law and Regulation lecture next time. We have the Food Quality Protection Act. We talked about the development of that to monitor pesticides in the human food chain uh, in lecture number four of this course. We've talked uh, briefly about the CWA or the Clean Water Act. We'll talk about the NPDES adjunct to that uh, here today, and we'll talk about it more as well and some of the original history of that law uh, next time. We also find that we have reconnaissance monitoring by various state and federal agencies uh, looking out there uh, to assess uh, our environment, uh, to see what shows up. 
for example, in California, they have something called the Muscle Watch program. Uh, and for years, what they did was uh, they actually uh, uh, sampled uh, mollusks, uh, mussels from various bodies of water, like the San Francisco Bay. The idea is that these filter feeders would be uh, essentially mute uh, biological uh, accumulators of potential toxicants. And so they would examine these mussels as biological indicator species uh, for concentrations of potential contaminants of concern. We monitor also for environmental research. Uh, some of the research drivers are just the asking of questions, the posing of hypotheses, uh, the scientific method of analysis of the environment that is around us. We also uh, are driven sometimes by forensic studies, forensic studies such as uh, if there is an oil slick walking, washing up uh, on a beach, uh, there might be some monitoring to identify the particular fractions of hydrocarbons in that oil slick to be able to better identify where that oil came from. Was it Alaskan crude? Uh, was it international crude from another area? And then perhaps try to target a leaky vessel or a shipboard accident that uh, led to that particular discharge. Now, the monitoring that we do uh, in uh, environmental science, environmental toxicology, can be regulatory driven. Uh, in research, it is hypothesis driven. Uh, for forensic science, it can be incident driven. Uh, for example, when a uh, 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 number of birds uh, show up dead uh, in a water body with no apparent acute toxin associated with that, there will be an incident to investigate, uh, especially if this is a trophy species, uh, to investigate uh, the cause of death. All of these require some sort of development of defensible data. When I use defensible data, um, again, we go back to how is this data going to be used? Is it going to be used in, for instance, a penalty phase of an incident-driven uh, 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 monitoring episode uh, where, in fact, uh, there will be uh, NEPA or National Environmental Protection Act uh, sort of damages uh, associated, perhaps uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps in some cases millions of dollars of penalties or fines associated with the observation of environmental toxicology. Uh, there is the uh, concept of making these activities lawyer-proof. What does that mean? Well, we've all seen the CSI shows and we've seen how samples are collected at crime scenes. The same sort of attributes are used in environmental monitoring data collection. Things like chain of custody, uh, making sure that what you say is true is in fact defendable, not only in the court of science, but also in the court of law. Our quality assurance quality control program will yield some confidence in the final result. Quality assurance and quality control does not, however, guarantee a truthful result. What we can say is that we put our best efforts forward, we use standard practices, standard protocols, and just did the best job we can. Unfortunately, we all recognize that nature sometimes plays games with us. And even within a well-established, well-calculated, well-derived uh, monitoring plan, sometimes uh, things in nature can escape us. Well, how do we define a project? We can do that as a single or multiple data collection activity. And these are somehow related through the same planning sequence. 
And so these projects, and sometimes these can be very long enterprises. Uh, I'm associated with several that are exceeding 10 years. You probably can just read the headlines or look around your own communities and find monitoring projects uh, that are extraordinarily long, sometimes decades uh, long. Uh, there is importance in terms of planning some of these projects to think not only in terms of historical reference of where we've been, but preparing for the future, preparing for data accessibility, interpretations, essentially showing all of your cards, making all of your work uh, documented and accessible such that future workers will be able to have value with what you put forth in terms of your monitoring activities. One of these uh, approaches is the development of a well-thought-out quality assurance project plan, sometimes called a QAPP or a QAP. A QAP is an orderly assemblage of detailed procedures designed to produce data of sufficient quality to meet the data quality objective for a specific data collection activity. This is a good definition to kind of know. The idea is this is a planning document, a planning tool, a manual for how to do what you're going to do and how to interpret what you're going to find out. Now, co-ops, because in a certain sense you're prognosticating, you're actually developing a, a future scenario. You don't know the outcome of your activities. What you're trying to template is how you would treat the data. Uh, trying to be fair so that, in fact, your own biases, and yes, we all have biases, that uh, your own biases or group bias doesn't reinterpret the data under a new set of standards because it's not turning out how you might have uh, uh, imagined the outcome. This is sometimes hard for us to really grasp, and in fact, in group process, it is best to actually lay your cards on the table in terms of your biases. Uh, we talked about some famous quotes uh, at the beginning uh, of the uh, semester uh, about scientists and the scientific method that we view, or we should want to view, the results of any experimental activity as knowledge in and of itself, whether that outcome be positive or negative to our wishes. And so in a certain sense, we have to divorce ourselves from the outcome, be good scientists. In a certain sense, a quality assurance project plan actually protects us from ourselves and our biases. Uh, this is sometimes a difficult area because sometimes many environmental activities have uh, different motivators, different groups, different passions associated with what is driving our concern about the environment. On one side of the table, they can be economic passions. Let's make some money, let's have a business, let's do something. The other side of the table might have some passions in terms of the environmental impacts to various wildlife species or fishery. Now, Quality Assurance Project Plan is, in fact, a planning tool uh, for these environmental data operations. The idea, again, just like any other activity, put down all of the methodologies, what you're going to do, what you're going to uh, try to do in terms of quality assurance, quality control, how you're going to label things, how many samples you're going to take. 
uh, how field individuals are going to interpret different sorts of field scenarios. What happens if it's raining on sampling day? Do you still go ahead and pull samples, or does, in fact, a rainstorm event uh, negate any sampling activity for that day? The degree of specificity is, in fact, uh, an important part of a co-op. Uh, it helps us, again, plan uh, and minimize any sort of on-the-fly decision-making uh, that might, in fact, impact the quality of the overall activity. This document will help us with uh, environmental data operations and how they are planned, implemented, and assessed with respect to quality during the whole life cycle of the project, program, or task. In fact, a monitoring activity might be a year or two long, and in fact, this document, once uh, uh, received and approved by all of the individuals, and in fact, this is sometimes a laborious task to get everybody to agree on essentially the operations manual of how we are going to monitor a particular impact. But once we've all agreed to this, uh, it becomes a, uh, a document perhaps of biblical proportion in terms of how this project is going to be managed. A key implementation aspect of a well-developed co-op is that everything is documented and deviations from the plan are documented. For example, if you did not in your quality assurance project plan discuss whether or not rain would have an impact on sampling activities and you find yourself out sampling in the field and a rainstorm comes up and you have a day's worth of uh, 12-hour sampling uh, monitoring activity going and halfway through it, it starts raining, what you do is you document any potential changes. The idea is if, in fact, that did challenge the quality of that activity, at least you've documented that in your field notes. Uh, quality assurance project plan will define how specific the quality assurance and quality activities uh, will be applied for a particular uh, uh, monitoring activity. And again, QA, QC can have a, as much as a 25 and perhaps even 30 percent overhead on any monitoring activity. The elements of quality assurance project plan, um, this in fact is a document, and so it's going to be broken up into a project management. There'll be an introductory section that talks about the history and objectives, some of the roles and responsibilities of all of the people, sometimes contractors, agency officials, industry or community members, oversight committees. It defines what you're doing and who's doing it, and it defines the goals of the activity. Um, it'll, it actually defines some of the major measurement and data acquisition activities, uh, the measurement system design, the implementation, the methods of how we're going to do this, and the quality control of those methods during the active phase of the project. There is an important section of a quality assurance project plan that deals with assessment and oversight. And the idea is, and this is typically done formal third party, that the, uh, and sometimes by, for instance, a quality assurance officer, that will come in and audit all of the data and all of the activities. If you said that you were going to take all samples uh, at noon every day, this individual, a data quality officer, would come in. And typically a data quality officer will work for the bosses of your boss. There needs to be a degree of separation uh, from this individual. And they will audit the field notes to make sure that samples were taken at 12 o'clock noon. And they will write up reports 
uh, with any sort of violations of uh, data. Uh, for example, um, if there is a deviation from a planned method of field sampling that is, is, is actually written up in the field notes, these deviations will actually just be noted. They may not impact the quality, but they do need to be noted. There will be uh, an assessment of the data validation and usability. Um, this is the quality assurance phase where you go back and look at all the quality control. And you said, for example, in your quality assurance plan that there are certain quality control standards, written standards of comparison of how good the data needs to be, how good the activities need to be. Did you achieve those standards? The quality uh, assurance report is going to be a review of the quality control activities to develop that final sort of pat on the back that yes or no, this is not or it is of good and acceptable quality. DQOs are strategic uh, planning tools for an environmental study. They're often a part of a quality assurance project plan. DQOs are important. Uh, it, they're based on the scientific method. They identify and define some of the type, quality, and quantity of data that are used for a particular uh, monitoring purpose. Uh, DQOs can actually be um, the ideas of uh, how traceability is established, how splits are established, what activities you're going to try to do. For example, if you take a sample and you split it between two labs and they come back with slightly different results, what is the limit of slightly different that you will find acceptable? Is it plus or minus 10%? Is it plus or minus 30%? These are best defined as data quality objectives before the study is conducted. DQL elements uh, uh, actually start with a concise definition of the problem. Uh, they identify the decision to be made. Uh, they identify some of the key elements in the decision. Uh, defines some of the boundaries uh, of the study um, that helps in developing the decision rule. The decision rule is quite simply stated as uh, when do we know that something is bad? Is it, for example, that we're using a cold water biotic criteria for cadmium in water and we're monitoring activity is going to use that as the baseline standard? The decision rule saying that if it exceeds this aquatic biota criteria, it is in fact impacted. It is always good to have those decision rules identified before you start the monitoring activity. What that does is it releases us from our passions and our biases. It gives us some cold, objective uh, uh, elements to be able to compare our monitoring activities uh, with at the end of our process. It does help us specify tolerable limits on errors. Uh, if we send repeated samples, the same samples, they're split samples or duplicate samples to a laboratory, what's the acceptable level of variation on a blind uh, split sample, on a blind uh, d uh, replicate sample uh, to a laboratory? Uh, it helps us also design an efficient data collection design. If we know, for instance, uh, that we really want to test the laboratories to make sure that they're giving us a quality uh, scientific product, uh, we may want to, for instance, put in our field plan, our field sampling plan, 
the collection of uh, duplicate samples, the collection of field blank samples, and we'll define what those are here in a moment, uh, to make sure that we have this aura uh, of, of quality assurance that in fact when we send them a blank that does not have cadmium in the water, that in fact the laboratory comes back with uh, that it is below the detection limit of the methods uh, used in that laboratory. That gives us an added level of confidence in their overall result. This is an important definition. This is the definition of quality assurance. It's worth a good read. Um, and uh, we can find several different kinds of definitions on quality assurance. What I've tried to do from my own background is uh, come together with a synthesis of some of the uh, uh, important elements of a definition of QA. QA is an integrated system of management activities involving the implementation, assessment, reporting, and quality improvement. And this is done to ensure that a process, item, or service is of the type and quality needed and expected by the client or user. Okay? There's some important concepts buried in that somewhat wordy definition. And that is that it is driven by the client or the user. Do you need six significant figures in most environmental monitoring operations? The answer to that is probably not. You probably do need two or three. If you have an unending budget, you may be able to afford six significant figures, uh, even if it was practical and possible, which it is not. But the idea is, when do you know where that limit is? Um, and this is a part of the definition of quality assurance. Now, for example, uh, we all make quality decisions in our own shopping. Uh, for instance, you're going to go out and buy a television. You know that there are five models in front of you. There's a certain amount of quality uh, that you're going to uh, desire in purchasing that product. But sometimes your desire for quality will be limited by uh, the size of your checkbook. And in a certain sense, you have to balance how much you can afford with how much quality you can buy for a fixed price. These same sorts of decisions come to play in environmental monitoring. We might want to go into a field activity and get uh, a very high end number to make sure that everything that we do is statistically significant, but sometimes we just plain can't afford that. We go in, for example, into a dioxin assessment when each sample costs $1,000, uh, 30 samples, which is not a very large sampling activity. That's $30,000 just of laboratory costs right there. And so this is one of the elements of quality assurance is what, can, what do we really need, uh, expect, and perhaps in some cases, what can we afford? This is a little bit different, and I want you to know the, the distinction between quality assurance and quality control. Quality control is best defined as the overall system of technical activities. These are technical operational activities that measure the attributes and performance of a process, item, or service. And we do this analysis against some defined standards, and this is to verify that the they meet uh, the stated requirements established by the customer or user. So exa for example, uh, in analyzing that cadmium in water sample, uh, a laboratory will know 
if they s analyze the same sample seven times, there's certain natural variability in their instruments and their processes in which technician, uh, whether they're left-handed, whether they're right-handed, the, 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 the uh, volumetric apparatuses, propagation of fixed and errors in all of the laboratory activities. So there will be variability in that outcome. But we can quantify that variability, and we can use that quantified variability to establish limits of quality control. So for example, a number that comes out of a laboratory should always be regarded as plus or minus something. There will be some statistical variation, typically 10, 20, or 30 percent in that number, even from highly reputable, talented, and sometimes expensive laboratories. Remember, these are operational techniques and activities, and they are used to fulfill the requirements for quality. So quality control are some of the primary elements of a quality assurance program, not the only elements of that. Planning, for example, is still a large-scale element of quality assurance. Now, we use this uh, quality assurance uh, project planning to go out and monitor the environment. And as I introduced in the learning objectives, there is still uh, quite a bit of debate about whether or not it is best to monitor the environment from a chemical point of view or a biological point of view. Uh, this is a biased debate, typically with uh, the bias stemming from whether or not your background is more physical or chemical or biological. Uh, the biologists uh, uh, and chemists recognize that pollution is a biological phenomenon. Uh, contamination uh, is only of concern if it, in fact, has a biological or potential biological impact. Uh, there is general agreement that we cannot describe that without reference to organisms, but recognize that organisms in our large numbers, if we consider the various species, and they are highly variable in terms of individual uh, genetic variabilities that we've talked about in dose response and genetic variability in this course. On the other hand, pollution is usually measured in chemical terms, things like biological ox uh, oxygen demand, uh, the concentration, for instance, uh, uh, 30 parts per billion, 30 micrograms uh, per liter of cadmium uh, in water. Uh, that uh, might be uh, related to uh, some sort of biological effect. And so both chemistry and biology are important uh, in monitoring. The chemists will argue that uh, they can be more precise in their measurements, so they can tell you uh, 30 plus or minus uh, two parts per billion uh, is the result, uh, which uh, may or may not exceed a particular criteria. Uh, the arguments against that, uh, that uh, we're not really sure that in all environments whether or not we have a direct linkage to biological phenomena. Uh, there is uh, some concern about what part of the system uh, that we're, or organism uh, that we're measuring. Uh, for example, is that a concentration in liver tissue? Is it a concentration in muscle tissue in the animal? Is it a concentration in the water, in a slack water part of a flowing water system where you might have some different processes going on? Or is it uh, a rapidly flowing lotic uh, uh, water system? Uh, the localization is difficult. Uh, for example, uh, when we take a water sample, where did that water come from? What's the dilution? Uh, did it rain yesterday? Is there seepage? Are we just below a spring that's going to impact uh, concentration? 
Uh, is it uh, a, a chemical or a, a phenomenon, a chemical phenomenon that is going to vary diurnally? In other words, uh, the rise and fall of the sun, uh, the thermal changes in that water body are going to have slight and sometimes dramatic uh, potential changes in uh, toxicant uh, contamination uh, concentration. Some of the sampling will suffer from uh, various temporal or spatial uh, variation challenges. An example of this is on this particular graphic. Uh, the uh, x-axis down here is time, and this is some discharge concentration. Uh, the discharge might be coming out of the pipe in a factory. It might be coming from a feeder stream to a larger uh, river. What happens is uh, perhaps if we send our monitoring team out into the field and we monitor here, it's a relatively low concentration. Uh, we might uh, uh, perhaps have sent a team out a few days later and we would find a relatively high concentration just due to the natural variabilities or some uh, anthropogenic variabilities in terms of the pollution uh, discharge from a particular factory, how many people are flushing uh, that particular day. Uh, here in this town, this is a university town, I will tell you because I work with the wastewater treatment folks in town, that uh, the week that students arrive, we have uh, uh, almost 15,000 new uh, or added uh, individuals flushing into the wastewater system. And so it changes the dynamics of the wastewater treatment plant. It changes the dynamics of their discharge into the local creeks. On the other side of the issue is the use organisms argument that comes from a biological perspective. The advantages here perhaps is that it's pretty obvious in its relevance because we're worried mostly about critters when we talk about pollution and those critters can include us. There is some concern about which critters to use, which organisms uh, to use. Uh, we'd like to have uh, an organism that's present all the time and these are called uh, sentinel species. Uh, that does uh, allow detection of sporadic events. There is an integration of the overall discharge and the overall impact uh, with these resident communities. Um, some of these uh, communities can be damped uh, and they can integrate uh, exposure over time. For example, the California Muscle Watch, these filter feeders, feeders will integrate exposure of various contaminants over time. Uh, there is localization uh, possible uh, by following uh, various gradients. It's just interesting also in about the last 10 uh, or 12 years, there's been some systems for certain types of toxicants that have tried to model biological uptake. These modeling devices uh, use uh, various uh, types of membranes uh, where on the inside is some sort of lipid compound, uh, an oil of some kind. Uh, and these uh, membrane devices, semi-permeable membrane devices uh, with oil on the inside are put into waterways and they accumulate toxins in the same way organisms might accumulate uh, without the loss of life that's associated with organismal monitoring. The arguments uh, against using organisms is that there is this uh, uh, spatial variability that can happen. To, uh, the organism that is going to be perhaps resident uh, at the end of the pipe uh, might be uh, uh, actually uh, killed off and uh, there might be some variability uh, in terms of populations and resistance. Uh, there can be some genetic uh, development of resistance. We see that in insects and their resistance to certain insecticides. Um, there can be um, variability in the organisms uh, in terms of uh, various species and even between taxa. 
There can be a lack of specificity of biological responses. Uh, it can indicate that the uh, animal is under stress, like oxidative stress, uh, in terms of uh, uh, an oxidant response uh, or free radical uh, chain reaction. But it may not be able to, because of biotransformation and metabolism, we may not be able to identify, in fact, the source of that stress. Sublethal effects uh, may be difficult uh, to identify, things like uh, subtle reproductive effects. Uh, for example, uh, uh, subtle effects associated with the discharge of antidepressants into aquatic ecosystems that might uh, end up modifying the predator-prey relationships and the response to prey. Uh, some species might become a little bit more, more relaxed when, in fact, they need to be more on guard in terms of survivability. Uh, there might be uh, some challenges in terms of determining overall cause and effect. Uh, if, in fact, we have a population decline of organisms in a particular water body, to be able to identify the cause of that population decline when, in fact, pollution is often a multifactorial uh, event. Uh, it's usually not just one pollutant. Uh, sometimes we can identify one pollutant in a field exercise. But uh, in fact, again, the same spatial variability, the same temporal var variability we discussed before, the operative toxicant may have come and done its dirty deed. And in fact, we might be looking at hereditary problems. And in fact, the source chemical, the source contaminant is already gone. The realistic ideal is pro most probably a combination. You use biology to detect a problem. You know, for example, uh, a reproductive failure or decrease in population, uh, and then we use uh, chemistry to to follow up uh, possible idea and identify uh, the probable cause uh, involved in that biological incident. Uh, we do need adequate baseline data, pre-pollution levels, uh, to really ensure that we uh, can start developing a pattern of cause and effect that might yield some sort of information. Uh, and then we would take this information into a controlled environment, a laboratory study, where we are able to control variables and see if we can, in fact, model those same outcomes in a controlled environment, uh, sometimes very difficult uh, thing to do. We introduced the concept of an indicator species. Uh, these indicator species uh, have been used in uh, the biological monitoring of pollution. Uh, there are several uh, that are, are out there. Typically, what we target as a species are a species assemblage uh, that have particular requirements uh, with regard to various chemical or physical variables. Often, we uh, try to use, uh, as an indicator species, something that uh, uh, is not population limited. Uh, they are uh, of high counts in terms of uh, environments. Uh, the loss elements in terms of trophy species isn't there. So for example, uh, indicator species like, like uh, water fleas or various uh, sort of anthropods or uh, insects, uh, uh, something where the loss of life that might be involved in a collection of those species uh, is not as significant, for instance, as uh, uh, we, we just don't go out and sample, for example, uh, bald eagles. Uh, what we do is watch uh, indicator species. We look for uh, the presence and absence, the numbers, uh, the morphology, physiology, the behavior. Uh, these are all field activities, reproductive success. 
uh, and various uh, responses. For example, uh, uh, in birds, uh, we might be looking at uh, egg concentrations of certain chemicals in a monitoring activity uh, to see if we could link a reproductive loss with the uh, release of a particular chemical. One of the things that we do with indicator species is uh, try to identify uh, whether or not they're there. Uh, the absence of a species uh, does not necessarily mean uh, that critical parameters are not present uh, because the absence may be due to other factors. There may be geographical barriers. There may be some competitive exclusion uh, by some sort of ecological analog, uh, internal competition among species. Uh, there might be some life cycle events. Uh, sometimes, especially with uh, migratory populations, uh, an event uh, that happens in another location can actually have an impact on the population in your particular location. There can be the uh, um, rabbits and foxes change in, in biological populations due to uh, predation, uh, parasitism, all of these kind of natural sort of life cycle events can have an impact on indicator species as it has an impact on other species in the ecosystem. In terms of an indicator species, some of the requirements that we'd like is taxonomic soundness and easy recognition, a cosmopolitan distribution, numerical abundance, uh, low genetic and ecological variability, and that's asking for a lot. A fairly large body size because we'd like to be able to actually take a chemical analysis. Uh, for example, in the muscle watch, we'd like to be able to actually do tissue analysis of muscles. So we have to have a certain mass amount, several grams of tissue, to be able to do a coherent uh, chemical analysis. We'd like to have limited mobility uh, and long life history. And so in the muscle watch, uh, they actually put the muscles in stationary bags uh, in places, and then they harvest those bags and use those. Uh, again, the filter feeders are happy uh, in these uh, perforated bags. Uh, we want to know about their ecology. We want to make sure that they're laboratory tolerance so that we can actually do laboratory-based um, uh, studies so that we can kind of know what sorts of uh, reactions or accumulation levels they'll have to uh, these transient, perhaps, uh, uh, pollution events. Some of these sentinel studies, uh, they're used to, to look at uh, bioaccumulation, uh, such as the muscle watch program. Uh, the concept um, of a uh, indicator communities sometimes is a more valid approach. It's not just a single species, but it's a balanced uh, community of organisms, uh, such as, for example, around sewage uh, outflows, uh, there is typically a sewage community. Uh, and uh, there's, this is the basis of uh, the pollution uh, coming out, the trace pollution coming out of, for instance, municipal wastewater treatment plants high in nutrients and organics uh, that seems to bump up certain types of species. Uh, this uh, will establish a, an indicator community to uh, uh, let us know, in fact, if these uh, species, and sometimes these are undesirable species, are benefiting from enhanced nutrient load, enhanced pollution of the waterway. We need to also, when we're taking a look at biological monitoring, be very cognizant of uh, normal and natural biological variability. Um, if you come from a biological background, chances are you've had good drilling and training in statistics because you need to be able to define trends in biology by statistical significance. 
there is a, a significant amount of biological variability. We need to be able to use statistics uh, to see, in fact, if there is a trend. Sometimes that's very difficult uh, if we see on this graph that, in fact, uh, our eyeball can, in fact, see a trend there, even though the day-to-day -day variability uh, is pretty darn significant. And, in fact, the standard distribution here uh, standard deviation of that trend might not be significant, but we can kind of look at that and see some significance, see a trend, uh, but in fact not be able to prove it as statistically significant. So this is a particular challenge in terms of identifying uh, impacts, uh, monitoring impacts in terms of addressing the issue of biological variability. Now, when we get out into monitoring the environment, we inevitably will be involved in a sampling program as a part of our quality assurance project plan. The questions uh, we have to ask ourselves include, are these samples and therefore the data development developed from them uh, uh, indicators of the target of monitoring? Uh, we have to ask ourselves, how is our sampling and analysis process uh, controlled to determine or minimize the various errors uh, and biases uh, that are associated with any sort of human activity? Uh, will we have confidence uh, in the final result? What are the limits of the performance in terms of our scientific capability? Sometimes uh, it's a cost-driven uh, limitation. Uh, we just can't afford to do 30 replicants, and we're going to have to uh, do the best job we can with three replicants, uh, uh, even though it might have uh, a high degree of variability in terms of statistical significance. It's all we can afford in terms of how we spend our treasure, how we spend our resources in terms of monitoring all of the risks around us. Some of the sample types we might uh, find in field activities include field duplicates, uh, blank samples, laboratory control samples, split samples, and matrix control samples. And I'll try to define these all for you so that you kind of understand the jargon of field and laboratory activities. A field duplicate is an independent sample which are collected uh, close as time uh, and space uh, uh, to one another. Uh, I always like to uh, uh, give you the example. If I'm sampling a drinking water sample, I turn the faucet on. A field duplicate uh, will be uh, an exercise where I take and I fill my one liter jar up. I seal it up. Uh, the faucet is still running. And I fill another sample uh, bottle up right immediately afterwards. That is a duplicate sample. That is different from a replicate sample. A replicate sample would be I would take an initial two-liter sample, and I, in fact, I would then take that two-liter sample and pour it into two separate one-liter samples. That is a replicate sample. I know it's uh, kind of jargon, duplicate, replicate, but in fact, there are specifics. Sometimes you'll hear replicates referred to, as you'll hear in the description definition here in a moment, as split samples. Blank samples are quite um, nice to make sure that you do not have a contaminated system. For example, um, what happens when you're going out into a field uh, sampling exercise? Uh, you're sampling water. It's a very windy day. Uh, the dust is blowing. Uh, perhaps this is a lead-contaminated site. You're more interested in identifying what the, the, the lead concentration is in the water, uh, not necessarily sampling the dust that is blowing around you. And so, for example, a trip blank might be a sample uh, where you have uh, highly purified water, distilled, deionized, reagent-grade water. 
and you actually bring that out to the site with you and you fill a water bottle of this sample you know has no lead in it and you fill a bottle with it uh, and what it does it captures all the dust that's blowing out there and makes uh, gives you an idea of what dust might be getting into that that gives you an idea of what's happening out in the field in the laboratory there might be some contamination in the laboratory as well and so the blanks that the laboratory does make sure that their glassware is clean that their reagents are pure uh, that their vessels uh, uh, and analytical systems are controlled so that the, there is no background amount, for instance, in this case of lead. Uh, the idea is that these blanks uh, help us uh, define what the background is in the process. Typically, and you hope uh, your blanks come out uh, to be less than the detection limit, the method detection limit, uh, and uh, that your field activities and your laboratory activities are, in fact, uh, not contaminated. There's something also called a laboratory control sample, and this typically is a known matrix uh, spike with the compound Represented of, representative of the target analytes. Uh, the idea there, for example, um, if you are looking at lead in sewerage sludge, uh, that is going to be different than a lead in drinking water sample. If I'm using a laboratory control sample that is um, a drinking water quality sample, um, the response of the extractions, the digestions, the instrumental analysis in the laboratory is going to be significantly different to the complex matrix of sewage sludge than it will be to the very clean matrix of drinking water. And so typically what we would do is we would fortify or spike uh, a sample of uh, sewage sludge and see if we in fact can recover that known quantity through our laboratory analysis. And so this helps us define in some fashion that we have the ability to see what we want to be able to see in these complex sample matrices. There are also split samples. Uh, these can, uh, are taken from the same container and they're analyzed independently. Sometimes they're blind splits. In other words, the laboratory doesn't know this and sometimes that provides very useful information to the quality managers in a project to be able to verify that a laboratory can say the same answer twice. You, in a certain sense, don't know what the absolute answer is of a concentration of a contaminant in this water, but you know that these two samples should have the same answer, and there should be the variability is a definition of the variability in the laboratory. What's also reassuring is when you do laboratory splits, in other words, you send a sample to two different laboratories, for example, lead and water, you know the answer, again, should be about the same. You want to find out if, in fact, a particular laboratory is biased positively or negatively and in fact, you need to recognize that all laboratories have bias. There is a bias, and what we try to do is actually quantify that bias. Uh, we don't necessarily adjust for it. We just like to know what it is. We remove or able, are able to quantify bias by using things called uh, standard reference materials. These standard reference materials will often, uh, they have an absolute number. We know that the answer should be 10, if a laboratory does an analysis of a reference sample and they come up with 8.5, we know that their laboratory analysis is biased by about 15% to the negative. 
It does not mean they're wrong. We just are able to quantify the particular bias of that laboratory. There are acceptable limits of bias, plus and minus, off of even standard reference materials. And typically, these are about 15 or 20 percent. Matrix control uh, is important. Uh, these, uh, again, are, are uh, important in terms of identifying any sort of matrix effects. Uh, for example, trying to recover uh, an organic uh, pesticide chemical out of a soil that has high degree of organic material is particularly challenging. It might be, for instance, a little bit easier to do the extraction from a sandy soil. And so controlling our matrix, uh, spiking, fortifying, looking at these uh, different sort of environmental matrix effects, and when I say matrix, I mean the type and variety of the different sample types, trying to match these uh, is important, whether we're splitting samples, whether we're just validating that, in fact, we can take a known clean soil, fortify it with a certain pesticide, for example, and be able to recover a relatively high amount of that. What's the definition of relatively high? Sometimes it's as low as 30%. But as long as we know that we can only recover 30%, we can use that information in the overall assessment of the data quality. It's not a data quality problem. Sometimes it's just the fact that we can't do any better than recover 30% of this material. So known recoveries of chemicals is an important part. Uh, the idea being that uh, if we know that this uh, is only going to recover 30%, we might, in fact, use this in our risk calculation in terms of the overall concentration that might be available in there. But we have to know how much uh, is, in fact, uh, being able to be retained by this complex matrix. An important concept in terms of data users is uh, that of method detection limit. Uh, you'll hear this as MDL. Sometimes you'll see a report with DL uh, as minimum detection limit. Uh, sometimes you'll see IDL uh, as instrument detection limit. Typically, an MDL is the minimum concentration of a substance that can be measured or reported within 99% confidence that the analyte concentration is better than zero. What happens uh, is when we determine these method detection limits, uh, we typically will take something like seven samples, analyze them three times, look at the relative standard deviation or the variability of the result. That variability gives us a definition of the amount of background noise that background noise is going to determine uh, that detection limit. And sometimes you'll find a definition of that detection limit is actually three sigma, or three times the standard deviation of the noise associated with a sevenfold replicate uh, analysis uh, of a sample. That's uh, one of the approaches. MDLs do not mean that the substance that you are looking for is not there. It just means that the laboratory methods are not capable of going lower. Different methods will have different detection limits. And so, for example, some permits uh, for, uh, for instance, hazardous waste cleanups uh, will actually specify a particular method, analytical method, knowing that that method has very sensitive uh, detection limits. Uh, uh, the idea, for example, if you submit uh, uh, data from a laboratory uh, uh, analysis act um, method that has uh, very uh, high detection limits. Let's say it's 100 parts per billion. 
when in fact the concentrations of concern are probably uh, in the 10 or 20 uh, part per billion range, you can say, hey, it's non-detected, but uh, it's probably the regulators are going to send that back to you and say use an alternate method that allows you to detect below 10 or 20 parts per billion. So method detection means uh, that, in fact, the process in the laboratory cannot detect it. It does not mean that it's not there. Interestingly enough, uh, even when you use the best methods available with the lowest detection limits, this presents a quandary in terms of doing risk assessment because we know that, in fact, we have not proved in a laboratory detection that it's not there. We just have proved it's below the detection limit, a statistical display or performance of that method. Sometimes, uh, in terms of risk assessment, we'll end up using zero. Sometimes we'll use 50% of the de detection limit or the DL in our risk assessment calculations. One of the things you need to know about limits of quantitation is how to use these appropriately. I've got a couple of quotes here. I'm just going to go ahead and read them because this is a very strong advisory on the appropriate use of limits of detection, the appropriate uses of numbers that are actually produced, uh, especially numbers that are produced without any sort of statistical uh, uh, quantitation of statistical variation on, on those numbers. Uh, to quote, and this is from the American Chemical Society, uh, an chemistry uh, treatise, Quantitative interpretation, decision-making, and regulatory actions should be limited to data at or above the limit of quantitation. Analytical chemists must always emphasize to the public that the single most important characteristic of any result obtained from one or more analytical measurements is an adequate statement of the uncertainty level. Lawyers will usually attempt to disperse with uncertainty, dispense with uncertainty, and try to obtain unequivocal statements. Therefore, an uncertainty interval must be clearly defined in cases involving litigation and or enforcement proceedings. Otherwise, a value of 1.001 without a specified uncertainty, for example, may be viewed as legally exceeding a permissible limit of one. So this gives you an idea that if, in fact, you're going to be uh, uh, using this information in a legal context, uh, you have to have a, an adequate statement of the uncertainty of that number. This might be 1.001 plus or minus 0.1, which would make that within sort of the statistical variability of the method. We're going to use the rest of uh, today's uh, discussion to talk about one particular program uh, that is used to monitor pollutants uh, in our environment. This is the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System. This is an element of the Clean Water Act. I've got on this particular slide uh, a little bit of history. I also have uh, a little photo down on the bottom uh, uh, that's a sign indicating the Cuyahoga River. The Cuyahoga River has uh, some infamy, if you will, in the NPDES program. It was one of the public uh, drivers. Uh, you can Google this and find out the complete story. Uh, but outside of Cleveland in the late 1960s, I believe this was 67 or 68, uh, and you'll see a little flammable sign on top of uh, uh, the Cuyahoga River sign. Somebody put that there, I think, as a joke. Um, but what happened was, in the late 60s, uh, the Cuyahoga River uh, actually did catch on fire. Uh, this, of course, is a, a, a water body catching fire uh, due to the industrial pollution in the area, 
was front page headline news uh, across the U.S. at a time uh, that there was a tremendous uh, uh, development of environmental consciousness in the United States. Uh, truth be told, uh, what really happened was there happened to be an oil slick uh, from an, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, an oil leak, a small oil leak. Uh, uh, not to say the Cuyahoga was not highly polluted. It was. It was a tributary uh, flushing into Lake Erie. Uh, and there were some uh, welders that were working on a bridge, and sparks uh, jumped down from the bridge and caught this uh, oil slick on fire. But the visualization of our natural waters in the United States being so polluted they spontaneously catch on fire was, was a highly popularized one, even though it was somewhat inaccurate. Uh, but again, the idea uh, in truth is that the Cuyahoga was a highly polluted uh, working river, as you hear the euphemism sometimes, uh, in fact, that uh, there was tremendous amount of discharge from industries, a lot of industrial runoff that, that went into this particular uh, working river. In 1965, in terms of our background in, in uh, managing discharge, especially discharges from point sources, these are pipes uh, typically from industry or municipalities. Um, in 1965, there was legislation that required states to have water quality standards. By 1967, only about 50% of the states actually complied by 1971. So in fact, this was an early failure in environmental law and, and uh, moving things forward. We'll talk, for instance, uh, in our environmental law sequence uh, about some of the early failures, for example, in the Clean Air Act as well. Um, in 1970, we had a Refuse Act and Permit Program. Uh, it was struck down in uh, 1971, um, and uh, there was some concerns about environmental impact statements associated with that particular act. 1972, this permit concept that was in RAP uh, actually did survive in the Federal Water Pollution Control Act. Uh, by the way, I, I graduated from high school in 1973. We've already talked about several environmental history incidents here in the course that predate uh, these uh, uh, pieces of federal legislation. Uh, these, uh, these initial permits uh, dealt mostly with conventional pollutants. We'll talk about what conventional pollutants are, but think nutrients when you hear conventionals. In 1977, we had the advent of the CWA. This is a monumental, major uh, piece of uh, environmental law in the United States. Uh, and there were some amendments that actually broadened it out beyond conventionals to various toxins. Uh, these toxics uh, are associated with uh, the broad range of priority chemicals, uh, priority pollutants uh, that we've talked about at various times in here. In 1987, we also had the Water, Water Quality Act, which uh, led to uh, enhanced effluent control. Now, the important principles, and this is an important uh, piece of environmental law and regulation here in the United States. Um, it, in fact, is the first time in our history that we have given people a permission to pollute waters. But in doing so, we declare that the discharge of pollutants uh, to a navigable uh, water is not a right. And so you can't just do it because you can. And this has a lot to do with upstream and downstream users and conflicts amongst the two. Uh, for the first time ever, uh, we went to a system where, yes, it was okay to put trace contamination into the water. That trace contamination level is an important basis of an NPDES permit. This permit to pollute actually specifies how much and when you can put this material into the water. It is a highly regulated, highly researched, scientifically based permit. 
Uh, it's required to use public resources for waste disposal, and it does limit the amount of pollutants that may be discharged. Sometimes this actually is uh, a strong enough permit, and these permits come with tremendous fines. Those fines can be as high or higher than $25,000 per day of violations. So if you violate for a month, you can imagine what these uh, fines and fees will run up to. Uh, violating your permit is not uh, an option for most industries. Uh, not only is there a public press, uh, public and press sort of uh, I'm a polluter sort of declaration when you do this, but it also can be very expensive in terms of the liabilities, the regulatory liabilities of violating this. Um, when you get a wastewater discharge permit, uh, it specifies that this water must be treated with the best treatment technology that's economically achievable, and this is a changing target as new uh, engineering, environmental engineering uh, treatments uh, are, are used. Typically, permits are about five years long. Um, sometimes uh, they actually will require uh, n the factory uh, to actually roll back processes or uh, change their discharge uh, to meet uh, these uh, uh, permitted or allowable amounts. Uh, the effluent limits uh, must be based on treatment technology performance. Uh, there may be some even stricter uh, abilities, uh, stricter permit levels uh, that are in a permit uh, because of contaminated waters. If I want to put a new factory into an area that is already impacted by other factories, by other processes, municipalities, uh, this water is pretty stressed already, uh, I may not be able to discharge any permit, any, any uh, pollutant. Uh, for example, phosphorus, whether it be from wastewater treatment uh, here in the Northwest or from Industrial effluents like food processing plants is a growing uh, concern, growing in, in terms of uh, the amount of discharge, but also the potential for eutrophication, uh, the growth of algae in some of these natural waters. Uh, because of growth in population, uh, the amount of runoff from agricultural fields, which is not regulated under NPDES, and uh, just the growth in, in overall discharge, the amount of nutrients in our water bodies has gotten to the point that new applications for permits are just not allowed. You essentially are given zero or next to zero uh, allowable levels of phosphorus discharge. The scope of the National Pollution Discharge Elimination uh, System uh, is that all facilities which discharge pollutants uh, from any point source, and this is important, a point source is a pipe or, or uh, other sort of uh, device. It isn't the runoff coming off of a field uh, that an agriculture, uh, agricultural operation will have or uh, runoff of a natural source. But that's into the waters of the United States are required to obtain a permit. Now, what are the waters of the United States? And this is a major uh, argument in federalism. This is state rights versus uh, uh, federal light rights. And there have been multiple court decisions over the past decade or two uh, that, are, that have tried to define what the waters of the United States are. Uh, there's actually uh, some major litigation happening in front of the Supreme Court, and you may actually hear uh, some NPDES decisions being made uh, here within the next 12 months in terms of the scope of this federal law. 
In terms of the program areas, there are municipal uh, effluent discharge. Uh, so when we flush, we're a participant in the NPDES program. We are contributors to the nutrient uh, discharge, the permitted nutrient discharge into the water bond uh, that uh, is around our communities. There are uh, indirect industrial and commercial discharges. Uh, these can be indirect in that they may discharge them to a municipal wastewater treatment plant in the same way your sewer system connects. Typically, they pay uh, on a, uh, a production basis. Uh, it also manages municipal sludge uh, use and disposal. Um, the biosolids, as they are affectionately known in a, a municipal wastewater treatment plant, uh, are managed in terms of their potential for uh, contamination, their treatment uh, prior to being, for instance, land applied. Uh, there is also a management aspect of overflows uh, for discharge. Uh, what happens when we have 10 inches of rain? All of the sewer systems that might be collecting that discharge uh, uh, might actually overflow a, a wastewater treatment plant or other holding tanks or the reservoir systems. Uh, there can be stormwater discharge aspects. Remembering that Stormwater is, in fact, collected off of our streets. Our streets are pretty grimy and oily. Um, how do you manage and treat stormwater? Because, in fact, there are high degree of, for instance, metals and petroleum hydrocarbons in stormwater discharge. And the stormwater discharge happens mostly in terms of its concern in urban areas. Industries are probably a larger focus in terms of uh, uh, public presentation of end-of-pipe concerns. Uh, these are process water discharges. Uh, there can be non-process water discharges associated with what's happening in this particular plant. And as well, they're not immune from stormwater concerns as well in terms of holding ponds uh, associated with their particular operations. And PDS uh, sometimes is associated with uh, traditional industries, but it also can be associated with uh, other sorts of industries, such as uh, mining and tailing ponds and holding ponds associated with various types of land use operations. The types of pollutants that are monitored and managed with the NPDES uh, uh, program include conventional pollutants. Uh, for example, BOD is biological oxygen man, typically calculated over a five-day period. TSS is uh, total suspended solids, uh, fecal coliforms, uh, bacterial uh, analysis, pH, oil, and grease. The toxics come from a priority pollutant list uh, in 40 CFR 40115. Uh, there's about uh, typically over 100. It's a changing list. Uh, last time I looked, it was 126. It's probably over 130 by now with some new elements, uh, new compounds that have been added. There are also some non-conventionals uh, that are listed. These are things like ammonia, nitrogen, phosphorus, COD. Uh, COD is a chemical oxygen demand. And as well, uh, a toxicity uh, analysis uh, uh, approach called WET, or whole effluent toxicity. We've actually here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology run you through some WET testing. What we have in WET testing is uh, the analysis of a complete discharge. Now, recognize that a discharge pipe coming out of a plant might have uh, process influence from about 10, 20, 50 different operations within that industrial uh, operation. So, in fact, it's the total toxicity of that water, not the toxicity of any particular element. And so typically what we do with wet tests is we dilute that effluent. And you did that using your probit model on uh, exam number one. In whole effluent toxicity, we'll dilute that. So 100% uh, is the 
effluent itself coming out of the pipe, whereas, for example, a 10% will be 90% uh, makeup water or pure water with just 10% of the water that's coming out of the pipe. That gives us kind of a dose response capability in terms of risk assessment. We manage uh, point sources with NPDS. Uh, they can be agricultural, domestic, or industrial. We do not manage non-point agricultural operations. So the uh, fertilizer that is uh, coming off of a field, an agricultural field, is not uh, necessarily managed under NPDS. There are other programs to minimize and mitigate uh, runoff from agricultural operations, typically driven by best management practices. There are uh, some uh, management point sources, uh, publicly owned treatment works, the municipal wastewater treatment plants, POTWs, as you might hear them called. And again, we've re referred to indirect as industries that have sewers going to a POTW, as well as uh, direct where industry might have a, their own treatment works on site and do a discharge. Uh, quite often we find uh, large scale industries that use high volumes of water will actually have uh, uh, reasonably sized uh, wastewater treatment plants on site. One of the regulatory issues associated with the Clean Water Act and with the NPDES program is the concept, uh, the stated concept in the federal law of navigable waters of the United States. Now what are these navigable waters and where do the Clean Water Act and therefore the NPDES apply? Uh, they can be tributaries of navigable waters, interstate waters, obviously, because it's a federal law, interstate lakes, rivers, and streams. They can be identified as water bodies that are used by interstate travelers for recreation and other purposes. Uh, waters used as a source for fish or shellfish sold in interstate commerce. Waters that are utilized by industrial purposes that in, uh, by companies that engage in interstate commerce. The Interstate Commerce Clause uh, is an important driver in terms of environmental regulation in the United States. It's one of the few sort of federalism, states' rights sort of balancing uh, federal law uh, actions uh, uh, that, uh, in fact, a lot of environmental law has. Uh, this concept is actually being challenged currently. Uh, there's many people that are looking, in fact, at this Supreme Court decision as being a watershed, if you will, in environmental law, and we probably will have that decision within the next 12 months. So I encourage you to keep, uh, you keep watching for that decision. It may actually change uh, the future significantly. The way this has been interpreted, uh, this has a lot to do with uh, um, how the Clean Water Act itself has been interpreted. But uh, wetlands and ephemeral streams, ephemeral streams are ones that, for instance, flow after a heavy rain or a snow melt, but then dry up during the year. Uh, pretty much in terms of the way the courts have managed NPDS and the Clean Water Act, uh, the, uh, the uh, metaphor is that if you can float a matchbox down it, uh, it's uh, uh, within the purview of the Clean Water Act. Okay, so the idea is that water, small water, leads to larger water, leads to larger water. Still, it, there's a contiguous uh, relationship of all waters that if we contaminate even the smallest water resource, that eventually that contamination will migrate to larger resources. Therefore, the federal government has a strong hand and a role, a regulatory role, in terms of managing contamination. Now, in terms of an NPDES permit, what exactly is it? Because, you know, we've talked about this as a license uh, or a permit to pollute. 
Um, there will be a cover page that will identify the name, location, authorization, and the specific discharge. It is very specific. It will characterize the effluent limitations based on applicable technology and water quality standards. Uh, so there will be some little bit of history and uh, identification of what's happening. There'll be some monitoring and reporting uh, requirements. Uh, will you have to pull daily samples, monthly samples, weekly samples, how many, how many replicates? Uh, all of those are important. If you're putting out low volume, uh, your standards in terms of monitoring are going to be lower. If it's high volume, high risk, your standards in terms of characterization and the compliance and reporting is going to be significantly higher. There might be some other special conditions, again, best management practices or BMPs, additional surveys, reporting requirements. There might be some conditions and administrative requirements. Again, the idea is that this report gets reviewed. Uh, it's a regulatory uh, permit. Uh, and again, you might be able to have uh, some level of overages uh, or variation above permit. Uh, and this will also be specified out in the permit. Uh, for instance, one overage per year is permitted. The idea being that sometimes it's hard just to have the engineering controls. You can't predict, uh, for instance, uh, mechanical breakdowns and uh, uh, um, acts of God, if you will, uh, in terms of what might happen and what might happen in terms of your water quality. Some of these uh, effluent limitations will actually be prescribed as technology-based effluent limits. Uh, these might be uh, prescribed in what are referred to as the effluent limitation guidelines or the ELGs of an NPDES. They can be process or industry-based, and so NPDES does have a pretty big catalog of what's available. Obviously, if you're going to do a potato chip uh, processing plant in Washington, it's not going to be all that different from a potato chip processing plant in Idaho. Um, you will see uh, terms called uh, Best Available Control Technologies, or BATs, or P, uh, BPTs, Best Practical Control Technologies. These are the recommended uh, best uh, engineering solutions to particular types of water quality problems. There will be the potential for case-by-case -case best professional judgment uh, associated with what's going on in your particular system, a little site-specific uh, identification. You can have an NPDES permit driven by uh, WQBELs, uh, water quality-based effluent limits. These are site-specific evaluations of a discharge and its effect on the regional receiving waters and the use and the quality tests. For example, um, if you are discharging to a quote-unquote working river as opposed to uh, a blue ribbon trout stream, you might have uh, different uh, uh, effluent bases. Uh, there is the concept of anti-degradation that is written into uh, much of regulatory law. One of the fundamental principles, as you'll learn next lecture in the, in the uh, Clean Water Act, is the maintenance of fishable and swimmable waters in the United States. Various water quality criteria that might drive the uh, development of NPDES permits uh, include uh, magnitude, duration, and frequency of the discharge. So the concentration of the pollutant, how much uh, the pollutant uh, is allowed to be delivered to the water body over a period of time, and then also the permissible uh, exceedances, if any, and that's not uh, a given. Uh, but again, there is a recognition that things happen in terms of trying to manage engineered solutions in very complex industrial processes. 
there typically is a narrative uh, that includes a statement that it's free from toxic, toxic levels. Uh, and so there is a uh, dose, dosage uh, uh, relationship in terms of how much you're putting out there. This is done from statistical modeling impacts of water quality and known impacts on various types of species and various water quality criteria, for example, uh, numerical criteria of two micrograms of cadmium per, li per liter or some other level that's associated with uh, water hardness uh, developed uh, for, for uh, typical types of hard waters uh, with uh, cadmium. Some of the future standards that uh, have been uh, developed in various applications, uh, there can be biological criteria in terms of looking at uh, biological integrity and perhaps even um, communities of, um, of uh, organisms. Uh, regulators are trying to develop sediment criteria, for example, in inland waters and waterways, uh, contaminants that might be deposited and collected over time in sediments and how to use that. Things like phenanthrene, some of the PAHs, insecticides, the bioaccumulative uh, 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 chemicals that might appear in sediments. Uh, in some cases, wildlife criteria, we're looking at, for instance, uh, protection of aquatic species using a fish tissue basis of selenium in terms of managing uh, discharge of selenium into the environment. Now, in terms of water quality determinations, there are several approaches to doing this. Uh, three of them include a chemical-specific approach, which is just what the concentration of the chemical is. We can do toxicity testing uh, or wet testing, WET, um, associated with complex discharges. And we can do uh, full-scale ecological bioassessments in a contaminated site. The chemical-specific approach uh, uh, does have some capabilities. It does protect human health. We do typically have some level of uh, health, uh, complete toxicology and health protection associated with it. Uh, there's typically some straightforward treatability associated with a chemical. Let's just remove this chemical via a particular process. We have some knowledge of the fate of the chemical, and sometimes the testing is less expensive. It's far cheaper to do uh, lead sample in water, usually, than to do all of the activities associated with sampling lead in the liver of a duck, uh, including the sampling, uh, the uh, necropsy of the duck, uh, and then the chemical analysis. There are some limitations to chemical-specific approaches and water quality criteria. Uh, it does not necessarily consider all the toxics presence because we just start looking for lead, for example. Um, there is not necessarily a bioavailability measured when we take a look at the chemical. Uh, we look at, for instance, total lead, and we've talked about the hazard of looking at that versus all of the different chemical species of lead. Uh, the interactions of mixtures and complex uh, levels of pollutants and all the interactions in terms of additive and synergistic effects uh, are not measured. Um, various complete testing protocols, if I want to do a complete pesticide screen, that probably is five or six analyses, uh, probably totaling $1,000, as opposed to uh, looking for one particular pesticide like DDT. Um, we cannot, however, detect uh, direct biological impairment by analyzing just how much chemical is in a particular site. There can be site-specific variability in terms of the impact, for example, cold water dynamics, cold water biota versus warmer waters and warmer, warm water biota. 
One of the ways we get around complexity with point source discharges, as I've said, is whole effluent toxicity or wet tests. These are typically um, done in uh, with uh, the water itself. There's acute tests, for example, 48 hours. There are chronic tests, uh, sometimes even chronic reproductive tests uh, that last the lifespan of the uh, target species. Uh, this is a daphnid or a water flea. It's only about a millimeter big. I've blown it up here microscopically. The uh, capabilities include that we can analyze aggregate toxicity using a wet test. We can address unknown toxicants. We can look at bioavailability. We can look at uh, various toxicological profiles for different types of species. Typically, these are fairly inexpensive. Uh, it takes uh, you know, a daphnid test, uh, an acute test. You put 20 daphnids in a beaker of water. Uh, that beaker of water is various dilutions of uh, the effluent that you're testing. And then after 48 hours, you just count the survivors. Uh, and there's typically, uh, with uh, using uh, invertebrates like uh, uh, daphnids, uh, we get away from the uh, major loss of life concerns that can be associated with some toxicity testing. There are some limitations. Uh, we have a pretty big jump in terms of uh, direct human health protection from some of these uh, species tests. Uh, typically because we use invertebrates uh, on these tests. Uh, there is an incomplete toxicity profile because only a couple of species are tested. There's no direct uh, treatment of uh, the results. Uh, there's no persistency or sediment coverage. Typically, we're just looking at what's in the water. Um, and sometimes these can be very complex analyses, especially with oily substrates, because, for example, we might just be drowning uh, these organisms and not necessarily intoxicating them. Um, the conditions in the ambient may be different. Uh, anytime we do a laboratory studies, um, we have to assume out uh, a lot of the variability that occurs in nature. And we do have a incomplete knowledge on what exactly in the mixture is causing uh, the uh, actual toxic response because it is a complex mixture. Another approach is to use bioassessments. And this will measure actual uh, receiving water effects. We'll take a look at historical trend analysis like uh, decline in fishery population. Uh, we can use it to assess quality uh, uh, above standards. Uh, typically, below standards, we typically won't see a biological impact. Um, we will uh, be able to uh, digest the total effect of all sources, uh, but uh, note that uh, unknown sources will be included because this is an open environment, so there will be variables that we uh, are not aware of. Nature uh, can, be, uh, can play jokes on us in terms of uh, the uh, variability and also the complexity of the natural environment. There are some limitations in that critical flow effects are not always uh, assessed. Sometimes it's difficult to interpret the impacts. If we see a population crash uh, in a particular species, what exactly is the cause of that effect? Uh, so we don't know that particular cause. There's no differentiation of sources. Uh, sometimes it happens, for example, on reproductive failure. The impact may have happened last year. It's long gone. Uh, it may have happened uh, because of an industrial accident. Uh, and the population is now just crashing because of the way uh, the impact. Uh, there is no human health protection in this general approach. 
We can use uh, whole effluent toxicity uh, in certain ways. We can develop the concept of toxic units. In the last couple slides here, I, I tell you a little bit how uh, NPDES regulators actually use the data in LD50s, uh, what we know in terms of laboratory and comparative toxicology studies, uh, as well as the water quality in a particular area to come up with uh, essentially numerical assessments, numerical risk assessments to determine whether or not a certain level of discharge is going to be allowed. And so this is what the NPDES permit managers on the regulatory side at EPA, for example, in the regional offices, they will be doing with each and every effluent as it's characterized and as each uh, discharger applies for a permit. A toxic unit is one of the concepts used in uh, wet testing. It's the inverse of the sample fraction. It's the preferred toxicity representation and we can use that uh, as the uh, 100 over 25. In fact, if we have a no-observed effect concentration of 25% of the effluent, so we have a 75% dilution of it in this chronic test, um, that 100 over 25 will yield four chronic toxic units, and that's a TUC of 4.0. We can do the same general approach for acute, and these are typically represented as LC50 numbers. And so uh, if we do these acute and chronic whole effluent toxicity tests, we can come up with these resulting toxicity units, okay? And I know this is getting pretty complex and, and uh, sometimes hard to, to, to understand, but this is the general approach that the regulators will be using in developing what's an acceptable level of discharge. One of the important concepts is to determine or even default to an acute to chronic ratio or an ACR. And what this does, it uh, determines this factor. It's one of the most important concepts. We want to track not only acute but also chronic impacts uh, associated with discharge. Um, on this particular slide, I won't go through the detail here. Um, I think we've gone into enough detail in this lecture. But the idea is that you can take these numbers that are developed off of wet testing and actually produce an acute to chronic ratio. Um, these acute to chronic ratios tell us whether we need to be uh, more concerned about acute effects or chronic effects. Uh, we can also default uh, to what those uh, acute to chronic uh, ratio uh, numbers are, and we use an, a default value of 10 for comparison. What we've done here is uh, give a mass balance equation of being able to go ahead and use these toxicity units uh, in a calculation associated with a real stream. We actually used a reasonably uh, equivalent approach early on in midterm one. I threw this at you because this mass balance should be pretty easy to imagine. Uh, if we've got small flows of a highly concentrated uh, discharge going into a larger flowing natural water body, um, there is a potential for dilution. Uh, when does dilution, in a certain sense, become the solution to pollution, uh, meaning that uh, when is it sufficiently diluted uh, to be uh, below any sort of level of concern, below some sort of limit of concentration? Uh, we have this available for certain uh, sorts of toxic compounds, but not all. If a compound that is in your discharge is a PBT, it's persistent, bioaccumulative, or highly toxic, typically you're not going to be allowed to have any sort of dilution uh, in your calculation, sometimes referred to as a mixing zone. And so uh, discharge is going to be severely restricted, severely limited. 
The next two slides on this I'm not going to go through. I give you some example calculations. They're very straightforward of how an EPA regulatory scientist would actually use uh, some information gathered in wet tests, gathered in stream flows to, able to be able to produce uh, an overall end result uh, and a permit calculation in terms of the allowable limits of, uh, of contamination that you are going to be permitted uh, to pollute in or contaminate into the local aquatic environment. Uh, all of this is a part of the process of who we are. It's the best system that we've come up in terms of registering and regulating uh, pollution as it happens in industrial and municipal uh, processes. It's a way for us as a public uh, to govern uh, the contamination of the nation's uh, uh, water resources. Uh, it's the best we've done. It's still probably only in the first or second generation of, uh, of how we've done it and whether or not uh, there are some associated long-term problems. Uh, it has proved to be a relative success uh, because it allows uh, industry to know what the requirements are in terms of operation to build in those engineering exercises in terms of water treatment into those industrial processes. The industrial processes assist the economy. They make the products that we use, the shoes uh, that we wear, the clothes that we wear, uh, the automobiles that we drive. All of these are part of uh, our uh, local sort of economy and economics of operation. Uh, is it sustainable? It's as sustainable as we probably could do in version 1.0, 2.0. Uh, I am sure and certain that future programs such as this uh, will enhance uh, the sustainability. One only has to look in the recent environmental history of the massive changes in water quality, the successes of even this early version of the Clean Water Act and the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System in terms of cleaning up our nation's waters as to have high confidence that in fact we are on the right track. Well, next time what we'll do is uh, we'll have actually a Socrates lecture and we'll visit the 10 most polluted uh, sites in the world, a guest lecture by Professor uh, Margaret uh, von Braun, who is actively uh, involved in this international assessment. Uh, the next lecture after that was a continuation of this uh, monitoring, and this is uh, going to look at uh, the regulatory science aspects, the environmental law, and regulation associated with environmental toxicology. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.